my name is Karis. I'm a senior, um, and I'll be reading the passage for us today. Um, so I'm going to kind of read it down the page, and y'all can kind of follow along, but I'm not going to read where it's from. I'm just going to tell y'all it's from Proverbs. Um, we're going through First Peter, Song of Songs, and First John. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I've been thinking about this the past few days, thinking about these passages. It is not an understatement to say that the backdrop of redemption is romance. You have pursued and loved your people. And you don't love us with a clinical love or a philosophical love. It is real. It is magnetic. It is warm. It is heartfelt. You love us. And so we pray that behind these conversations that we're going to mainly be thinking about, about us and a girl or us and a guy, uh, we would see you standing behind it, your affection for us, your pursuit of your people. Do this because you love us. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, hopefully you realize it's no accident that we're talking about dating as friendship uh, the week after we talked about those deep kinds of friendships, the ones that we discover, the ones that we forge. They're meant to go together. And everything that we're really going to say tonight is supposed to grow out of what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, we're not going to repeat that, but I'd say go back in the podcast and listen to it. These are meant to hold together. 
You could say last week and friendship is the pillars of what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes uh, together. One of the key things we saw, like I mentioned a minute ago, is these deep friendships can't be forced. They're discovered. We can't create them. We just have to rearrange our lives for when they come along. We find these friends when we bump into that kindred spirit. Like we said last week, when you, when you bump into somebody and you find someone who has the same song in their heart that you have in yours, there's that similar interest, that similar passion. You're about the same things, driven by the same things, heading in the same direction. And you have that you too moment where you see each other in this similar pursuit. You see each other and you have a friendship about that common interest, that common passion, that common pursuit. And again, you have the decision to make, let it fizzle because neither person did anything or forge it, build it into something deeper and more intimate. Which we saw last week was that heartfelt, like soulmate kind of relationship that David and Jonathan um, had together. Have you heard how C.S. Lewis distinguishes a friendship with something that's more than a friendship or friendship and romance? What's driving the relationship isn't any longer just merely this common interest or common passion or common pursuit. It's the other person. The other person becomes the object of your fascination, of your interest, of your exhilaration. That's the transformation from just friends to more than friends or from friendship to romance. So romance is when those two people begin to look at each other and notice each other and move towards each other. Now, when that pivot happens, um, a lot of other things happen. That's like a first domino to fall. You want to spend more time together. The clock seems to be kind of like on fast forward when you're together. Where's the time gone? Like, how did we talk for four hours? It felt like 30 minutes. You get that weird feeling in your stomach when you're around each other. Your friends start to say, what are y'all? Like, what's going on? And you start to wonder, what are we? And either with some finesse, because you have some experience, you find your way into a first date. Coffee, a meal, a walk, a run. Or if you don't have experience, maybe with a little bit more awkwardness, you stumble your way into that. And you don't really know what that is, and she doesn't know, or he doesn't really know what that was. But in your heart, you knew what you wanted it to be. A date. And if you're Christians, or you grew up in the church, you might also be wondering a deeper question of, what's God have to say about this? Like, if this is going to be a thing now, or has the potential to become a thing, I kind of want to study up. <laughs> like, meet up with all my friends who are dating or have experience in this, and be like, hey, what are your tips? Like, what's around the corner for me and this other person? And if you ask the question, what does God have to say about dating, then you're going to find out he has nothing to say about dating. At least the Bible has nothing to say about dating. And the reason the Bible has nothing to say about dating is because dating is modern and Western. If this stage was human history, like from the beginning of humanity at the corner of the stage over there in 2023 over here, um, I don't know if this is going to mess up the mic, but like dating was invented about right here. And each culture and each generation all before that in history had their own unique way of how a guy and a girl who are considering a future together or in some cultures are interested in each other or their families see it as advantageous to be together. They had all these other ways for that to happen. But about 150-ish years ago, 
the way that culture kind of developed was, the, uh, was this thing called courtship and then this thing called dating, which at this point in the modern kind of manifestation of dating is really something that's kind of just involves you and this other person, not as much the parents, not as much the families, or as anybody else. But that's one of the reasons the Bible doesn't have much to say about dating. It's because it's new, it's modern, it's Western, and the Bible is not new or modern or Western. But you might be thinking, but I've read a lot about kind of romance in the Bible or about marriages in the Bible or about Jacob and Rachel or about Isaac and Rebecca. So what's going on? The Bible has plenty of descriptions for what romance looks like, what it looks like when these two friends begin to look at each other and now they're interested in each other and moving towards each other, not just this common pursuit. The Bible describes plenty of romances, but it doesn't prescribe the exact way to go about that, the exact way to date, as we call it now. It describes plenty of those kind of experiences, but it doesn't prescribe and say, here's the formula, here's the biblical approach to dating. There isn't one. So what this means, like, what are we left with? Do we just make it up? More on that in a minute, because we do. (laughs) Should we? Not as much. So where does it leave us? It leaves us in the realm of wisdom. And wisdom is a fruit of internalizing God's voice, his word, his heart. And learning over time how to deftly apply it to situations, like new situations. So what we're going to do here is lay a a really thick, deep foundation. And then we're just going to kind of throw some bricks on top of that, some practical bricks of like, what does this actually look like today in real life? So we're in the realm of wisdom. And the good news about um, people who lack wisdom, uh, we did a series in Proverbs a couple of years ago. We talked about a lot of similar things in that series. And one of the things that I learned in that series that I'd never thought about before is the first chapter of Proverbs is kind of like the invitation, or who is this book to? God invites a specific group of people to come and, as it were, sit in his lap, sit in the living room with him as, his, as your father, as he teaches you wisdom. Who's on the invite list? Those who lack sense. The immature. Fools. The ignorant. Those are the people that God specifically says, hey, the door is wide open. Y'all are the ones that I'm calling into the living room to sit around the fire and let's talk about life the way it actually is. So if you feel like any of those labels might fit some part of you as it pertains to this subject, um, come near. God welcomes you. That qualifies you for what we're about to talk about. It doesn't disqualify you. And that's even the mercy in the words on the page um, already. So if we listen to him, what will he tell us? Um, first, the, the, one of the key features of wisdom is being able to distinguish between fake and real, fantasy and fact, reality and virtual reality, or Disney and real life. That's a key feature of wisdom. A key feature of foolishness is not being able to distinguish between the two. You can't tell. Uh, pretend world or fantasy world or wishful thinking world versus the actual real world that we live in, that we're doing relationship inside of. So let's apply this to our topic. What does God say in scripture about guy-girl relationships? And what's the real world dynamics that he's made between 
guys and girls. If you track through scripture all the way through, you'll see, you'll recognize a theme. There's three kind of creational categories for male-female relationships that God has designed. The first is marriage between husbands and wives. The Bible has a ton to say about that, a ton to say about how husbands and wives live together and love each other and treat each other. Another one is family, obviously, right? Moms and children, dads and children, family units and how they relate to each other. And the third one is friends and neighbors. We've talked about that a lot the past month. Neighbors and friends, how we're to treat each other. The Bible has a ton to say about that too. Here's the principle. We'll explain it and we'll, we'll illustrate it. The nature of each of those three relationships, marriage relationships, family relationships, friendship or neighbor relationships, the nature of each of those relationships determines the behavior that fits those relationships. The nature of the relationship determines the behavior that fits or makes sense to that relationship. And the behaviors are only healthy and life-giving when they kind of fit in the right category. If they spill out into other categories, those behaviors become foolish and it causes a lot of damage, confusion, and chaos. So here's an example um, I used a few years ago when we talked about this in the past. Uh, Imagine this, a little cringy uh, to kind of play this out, but it really proves the point. Imagine me and Anna, and at the end of the night, um, you know, I give kind of this, you know, romantic goodnight kiss to my wife, and I say, goodnight, Anna, I love you. It's appropriate. It's healthy. It's fitting. It might even be admirable because we're married. The, The nature of the relationship that we're in determines the behaviors that flow out of that. Were I to kiss my mom the same way, it's super creepy and unhealthy because we're family, not married. And if I were to kiss my neighbor that way, it's a felony (laughs) because we're not married, we're not family, we're strangers. It's a hyperbolic example, but it proves the point. There are certain behaviors that only are healthy and life-giving inside a particular kind of relationship, and for that behavior to be present in another kind of relationship is problematic. Uh, It cuts both ways, though. Have you ever heard a mom or a dad or a parent or some married person say, like, we're in a really rough spot in our marriage. It feels like we're just roommates right now. Have you ever heard that? They're saying the behavior in this relationship doesn't fit the nature of this relationship. We're not just friends and roommates or strangers or neighbors, but we're acting that way, and that's problematic too. Behaviors that don't fit the nature bring confusion and chaos and foolishness and hurt. So the nature of a relationship determines the behaviors that are appropriate to that relationship. And guys, this is why it's so important that we discern from Scripture what kind of relationship modern dating is. Remember, the Bible doesn't explicitly answer that question, so we're in the realm of wisdom. We're discerning what kind of those three categories of relationship does dating, modern dating best fit in. We don't know how to treat each other, what to expect of each other, who I am to you, who you should be to me, whether dating's attainable for me or within reach or not attainable, we don't know answers to any of those questions until we know the nature 
of modern dating. In which of those three folders God puts it in? Which of those three categories that he puts it in? For example, to put it bluntly, is, is, is dating a kind of marriage? Is dating a kind of friendship? Is it something else? Where would you file it? Where would you file it? Now, if you had to, if I gave you three folders. It's been conf- this has been a confusing question for a long time. And I had zero categories for any of this. Probably until I'd been married five years. <laughs> God is so merciful. I think we tend to respond one of two ways to that question. Is, date, is modern dating kind of, does it fit in the marriage folder, the friendship folder, or do we make a new folder? Here's the two ways I've, I've noticed us tending to respond. Um, we either file it away in the marriage folder and dating becomes some kind of pseudo-marriage. Some kind of confusing pseudo-marriage where like, I kind of feel like, I mean, there's a lot of overlap with the husband and the wife thing with what we're doing, but we're not. A lot of tension and confusion can come out of that. Or we elevate dating into its, basically we say, hey, um, I need another folder and I need a Sharpie. And we just invent a whole new kind of divinely sanctioned category. And when we invent a whole new category of male-female relationship, uh, we have to invent a whole new set of rules and norms and expectations for that category. Um, It can feel arbitrary because it is. It can feel like we're just making it up or it's this oral history passed down from generation to generation because it is. There's a book that uh, came out recently. <clears throat> it's very similar to the sec- uh, Single Dating Engaged Married book by Ben Stewart. I'll talk about him in a, in a little bit. But this book is called Sex, Dating, and Marriage. And they put it this way. The authors put the problem this way. Unlike previous generations, which understood the term dating to refer to something a guy and a girl did, the modern concept of dating often refers to something they are like a status, like a, 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 a new creational category. And in doing so, we've created, apart from Scripture, our own category of male-female relationships. And so we're forced to also invent what behaviors fit this new invented category. But inventing our own moral guidelines has never gone well for humanity. But that's reality for a lot of us. It's kind of in the water that we swim in. It's in, kind of in the culture that we've been raised in. It's powerful. It's formative. And it's not going to leave your system just because you heard this tonight. The residue is in all of us. It shapes our emotions, our dreams, our hopes, our disappointments. It shapes your answer to the question of what do you think dating is? Your reflexes. And we, need to just, we just need to be aware that this is going on and it's kind of the water that we swim in. Whether we elevate dating to a status it does not have, like those authors just said, or whether you file it away in the marriage folder and, you th- and we think that dating is some, some kind of a marriage, the result is really in the same. Let me bring it down to earth. If in your mind and in your heart you think you're in a pseudo-marriage with your boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're unavoidably going to, ne- to start acting like you're in a marriage with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It makes sense, right? If you think or feel 
that we're in some kind of a pseudo-marriage now, a new status. Like we've hopped categories from friends to like some new thing. Then it follows that we're going to naturally start acting that way or struggling not to act that way. Let me give you some examples. This is, this is where the slide happens. It's where a lot of foolishness, uh, we can open up the door to a lot of foolishness and hurt in our lives and our relationships. For example, um, unique features of marriage that are healthy and good in a marriage but are unhealthy and problematic anywhere else. Jealousy and possessiveness are beautiful qualities in a marriage. Like I would be questioning whether someone really loved you if they weren't jealous for you and possessive of you. What's happening at a wedding is a man and a woman giving themselves over to the other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about sex between husbands and wives, your body belongs to the other. So possessiveness is appropriate. Anna should look at me and say, he's mine. And I should look at her in love and say, she's mine. No one else on the planet is, but she is. We belong to each other. But if you think you're in a pseudo marriage and you start looking at your boyfriend or your girlfriend, by the way, if you're not dating, we're going to talk about that in a minute. I know that's the majority of you. But if you're dating and, and you look at, you look at, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to out almost all of you that way, but it happened. It just slipped out. We'll bring it back. <laughs> if you think you're in a pseudo marriage or you've elevated whatever you think you're doing into some new, huge, like, you know, breaking news um, category, you will start to feel more and more jealous of your boyfriend, of your girlfriend, in harmful ways that don't bring you together. They distance you or you'll feel possessive of them. You'll, you'll, you'll think that you have rights to them or expectations of them that are, that are not helpful, not life-giving, not appropriate, that smother them um, or that are off-putting. Jealousy between me and Anna draws us together. Jealousy in a, in a dating relationship sends you apart. Expectations of time or access, expectations of what you think they should be sharing of you. Anna has a legitimate expectation to... Uh, for, for transparency, for me and I, for her, it's, it's how we bond. Uh, we have expectations that are healthy and good of each other's time. Uh, like, we have to negotiate it, right? Like, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm, most, of, most nights I'm home. I'm home by six now, and Anna has... I can't get bent out of the shape of it. I'm her husband, and I'm the father of my children. There's a legitimate expectation. But have you ever been in a dating relationship where things have gotten sideways because... You didn't get the memo that every Friday night was supposed to be set aside for him or for her, but they certainly think that's the case. They have a marriage-level expectation of a non-marriage relationship, and instead of bringing you together, it sends you apart, physical intimacy. You know what I mean about uh, struggling not to feel married? Uh, we can think, well, we're in a new category now. We're not just friends anymore. Um, so the boundary lines have, have kind of pretty radically pushed out in terms of what we do with each other's bodies, what, what I do with my body in terms of nakedness. Uh, those boundaries have pushed out because we think we're in some new category. Our expectation of security, this is a big one. Guys and girls both feel this. We can have the DTR and be in a new status, like we're dating now, but we still feel insecure. 
What if he leaves? I feel like I need the relationship clarified. Where are we? Is this going towards marriage? Like, is this serious? That need for security, for reassurance? Matt Howell's a friend of mine. He used to be an RUF campus minister up at um, UT Tennessee, and he, he, he captures the insecurity that we feel and where it comes from. He said this. He was pointing out kind of how our culture confusingly defines dating. He says, dating is making an exclusive commitment that by definition is not exclusive and it's not a commitment. If that's confusing to you, that's because it is confusion. So we think, again, the way we've been formed, we think in our heads that dating or clarifying that relationship brings us to a place where we're now exclusively committed but we both know it's not exclusive and it's not committed. There's another campus minister, Les Newsom. Um, back in the day, he was the campus minister at Ole Miss, and he tells the story of um, meeting up with a student of his. It's very dear to him. Uh, they had known each other for years, um, had met up a lot. And you know, she texts him and says, we got to get together, and uh, gets together. And he's like, what's the update? And it's like, well, um, me, and, me and that guy, we're dating now. We had the conversation last night. And he very gently kind of wanted to explore that uh, with her. And um, he said, I'm just curious, after he kind of heard the excitement, he, he, he didn't rain on her parade, but further on in the conversation, I'm just curious, between last week before y'all were dating and this week when you're dating, what changed? And she said, well, I told you, we're dating now. And he said, yeah, I know, but like, but what changed? She said, well, I guess like we're exclusive. And he said, okay, can I ask you one more question? She said, yeah. She said, well, what would happen if a few months down the road, one of you found yourself falling in love with someone else or being attracted to someone else or questioning the relationship? And she just automatically said, well, I guess we'd break up. And he said, see, that's just the problem. Y'all think something has changed in the exclusivity of your relationship, in the commitment of your relationship, but nothing's actually changed. Do you see how that brings in confusion and tension um, and insecurity and blurring of lines in all of those areas that we've talked about and mentioned? You might have noticed we haven't even talked about the scriptures on the page yet. All of this, though, is really hovering over Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. What we have been talking about is even our subconscious, unwitting ways we have, we have soaked up a view of dating uh, that's got to be corrected. It's a view of dating that leans on our own understanding, and that's not just like your singular, but our collective understanding, our cultural understanding, our generational understanding. It's a crowdsourced view of dating but it's one that doesn't fit God's design for you and for romance and for thriving. And so his invitation is to trust in him, to listen to him <coughs> in, our way, in all our ways to submit to him so that he can make even our dating paths, our romantic paths straight again. He's willing to do that. Doesn't matter what your past is. Today's a new day. So what is the wise way to date? Let's get to these passages. We're, buckle up. This is about to be rapid fire wisdom mode. We're just going to kind of go down that list and hear what he has to say that brings light back into this 
blurry, confusing place we can be. What does God have to give us to help and to clarify? First, here's the answer to the big question that I raised and never answered. What folder does friendship rightly get put in? What category? We've kind of hopefully demonstrated it doesn't fit in the marriage folder, the marriage category. It's not a pseudo-marriage. It's a special kind of friendship. Dating is a special kind of friendship. First big piece of application for, for many of you who, like me, were pretty petrified of dating. <coughs> By the way, you can go on date nights. You can go on not-a-dates. You can talk to guys, talk to girls, and still be petrified of dating. And I was all through college, even though all those other things were true. It was my secret. It's something I was too embarrassed to even tell my friends. And therefore, I didn't get much help in it. I was just stuck. Hear me. If that's you, this is great news. You know how to do friendship. You do it all the time. I know it's hard. I'm not saying friendship's easy. Remember last week? It's hard to forge that depth and intimacy, but you know how to do it. You've been doing it your whole life, how to be friends with your new roommates, with your hallmates, classmates, people you work with, how to build a friendship. If dating is a special kind of friendship, dating is accessible to the average person in the room, you don't have to be Casanova. You don't have to have a ton of experience. It means it's within reach because it's not a pseudo-marriage and the weight of the world is not resting on it. If it's a pseudo-marriage, it is. If it's a special kind of friendship, it's not. So what's so special about this friendship? What's so special about a dating kind of friendship? Well, let's look at that. You've been running in the same circles. Whatever your preferred method of research, you've been doing that. Looking online, <coughs> asking his friends or her friends about them, observing them from across the room, thinking about them making little mental notes all the time about how they carry themselves. And they continue to catch your eye. They're different than the others. And as hopefully you get to know them better and better, you have a little bit more opportunities to cross paths and to be around each other. Or if your research has yielded some helpful results, you've had a chance to observe their character too. And maybe you're having a beginning sense of, she's different. Or at least she's different to me. Um, ultimate romantic words um, to a woman and to a man. For a girl to say, you're different than the rest. Or you're different to me. Um, boy, do you just, like, you feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And that's, that's the beginnings of, of this romance and this attraction to each other. You find something compelling about their character, about their personality, maybe about the way they look, um, you notice them in a different way. And I want to distinguish this real quick from just a crush. Grace told me last week the kids these days are saying a crush is just a lack of information. Maybe a crush was the first little catalyst, but a crush is, it's what we already talked about earlier. Um, it can become something wise and legitimate. It can be that spark that begins uh, this learning of another person's character and personality and how they carry themselves. But if it remains a crush, it's in the fantasy world, the pretend world, the fake world, and it bears more of the marks if it is harbored and not metabolized or dispensed with or acted on. 
If it stays in that fantasy world, it has more, in line, more characteristics of foolishness than wisdom. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you found ways to get to know them. You've put yourself in similar spaces so that you can observe them, and you're pretty convinced she's different, he's different. This is Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a single friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, we said it last week, there's everybody else, all the companions, and then there's you. You're different. Or I think you're different. I want to explore that. That's some of the beginnings of this. In other words, you see potential. You see pavement in front of the two of you in your friendship. Like, this could go places. And I want to see if it goes places. Um, by the way, a side note. Um, for th- this comes up a lot in our conversations. Um, and I felt this too in the past. Uh, sometimes we say stuff like, I-, I don't know whether to act on my interest, though, because it will change the relationship. And I don't want to risk losing the friendship. And we need to help each other realize at the point you feel this about the other person, the relationship has already changed. And there's not really any going back. Your decision is not to protect the status quo or take your shot. Your decision is probably more to move closer to him or her in intentionality and clarity or to move further away. But if the status quo remains, somebody's heart is going to get steamrolled by the other person who either knowingly is being flirtatious and doesn't really care how he or she's impacting you or unwittingly is leading you on and hurting your heart. But by the time we we raise that question to people, the relationship, that, that page has turned and there's a new decision in front of you. What else is so special about these relationships? Uh, There's something else going on. And this is more subjective and mystical and hard to explain. It's more of a feeling sometimes. It's what we call chemistry, Song of Solomon 4.9. As one lover speaks to the other, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. What's being communicated there is this is something outside of your control. The pathway into a more than uh, the pathway into a dating relationship isn't just something we rationalize our way into or think our way into or scheme our way into. There's something intangible going on too. My heart, it's not like I gave my heart to you, you stole my heart. You didn't even ask. You walked into the room and I noticed you. We got to know each other and I couldn't stop thinking about you or whatever. You stole that. That's the chemistry element that we talk about a lot. I've done a nice, even number of um, uh, marriages and kind of the premarital counseling that goes into that, 30 right now, so I can do statistics with it. And as I think back over those 30 couples over the past um, 10 years, I'd say only about three of them that I can recall had that love at first sight. Like, I walked in the room and you stole my heart, and I went back and told my roommate, that's the man I'm going to marry or that's the woman I'm going to marry. I used to think that didn't happen. I think it does happen. Those people struggle in other areas. But it's the tiny, itty-bitty minority. 90% or more of the couples that that I've walked through that with is they excavate their stories and the beginnings of it. That interest developed some point later on. Recently, there was a couple. uh, They were both in RUF for four years together. 
sitting on the same rows. And it wasn't until they had both graduated and ran into each other at a friend's party at a different season of life, and he said, I noticed her. I saw her in a different way for the first time. And she said, uh, when, when, he, when he asked for my number, when he asked me out, I saw him in a different way. And they're married now. So you can't, you can't hold God to a promise he never made that that's a prerequisite to explore interest with somebody that seems different to you in a good way. Some, for some people, it comes later, not up front. There's also something special about these relationships because it's headed towards a greater depth and discernment. Uh, next week, we're going to continue this conversation talking about kind of dating as it leads to marriage, and we'll talk more about that. But I'm just saying tonight that dating, as it gets serious, it begins to have a goal on the horizon that it's paying attention to, and it, that's discerning whether or not this is the kind of friendship, the kind of person that I want to move into the rest of my life with. Are we compatible? Can I help her in the way she needs help? Can, can I help him in the way he needs help? Is there this kindredness and this friendship among us? Do I trust his or her character? Do they love people well even when the cards are stacked against them? Dating is trying to discern that. Ben Stewart, the author of that book I mentioned earlier, he said dating is not a status to dwell in. We've already talked about that. But it's a process to move through. It's a series of actions meant to lead us to a particular end, which is discerning whether or not we are meant to marry a person. Dating exists for evaluation. I hope you don't hear that quote and let it erase everything we've already talked about. It's not saying dating is super task-oriented and you've got a job to figure out and you've got a month to do it. No, all of what we've talked about is in play. The beauty, the stealing of hearts, the chemistry, the fun, the kindredness, the friendship. But it's not aimless. It's not just adults acting like kids playing. They're going somewhere. They're trying to figure something out over time prayerfully. As you move through that process, you're discovering a depth of character and hopefully respect is growing. Ladies, if you marry a man you don't respect, it will not last. And guys, if you marry a woman that you don't look up to and don't respect, if in specific ways she doesn't appear taller than you, in her maturity, in her character, in her godliness, in her love. It, the future doesn't look bright. Respect is such a critical element. So hopefully as you're getting to know each other and moving through this process, respect is growing, admiration is growing. You are encountering a person who, like Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, um, are able to draw out the, per the, the depths of your heart and you feel safe letting them hold the depths of your heart. And if you're not experiencing that because dating's about evaluation and it doesn't mean that it's always a thumbs up, some couples discover um, there's not that respect growing. There's actually a little bit more disrespect. Um, I, I can't look up to him. I don't admire her. I don't want to be more like her. Um, he doesn't spur me on. He doesn't draw me nearer to the Lord. Um, and if that's happening, perhaps what's beneath that is what Proverbs 11.22 is getting at. And I told Anna when that was read, boy, that always stings no matter how many times I've heard it. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman or man because of the context without discretion. What he's saying is at first you might fall in love with the shiny gold object, but as you zoom out and get context, 
for that shiny, beautiful gold object, the context is a pig, someone who lacks character and discretion or direction. Um, better, um, or he says, like gold in a pig's snout is beauty or charm or personality or chemistry that's not backed by character, not, ba- not backed by a loving heart. What beauty are we looking for in each other? What First Peter says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. He's not against that at all. God's not against that at all. Read the rest of the Bible if you want proof of that. What he's saying is, don't you know all those things are decaying and going away? But what is growing and getting better every day is inner character. So rather let your beauty be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's eyes. Speed up to hit these last few. I know this is long. We're, we're almost done. All of this process happens in community. It happens in community. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance or counsel, a people fall but an abundance of counselors, there is safety. You might be realizing by now, boy, um, okay, friendship, the friendship thing helped me. That's like more ground level, I can do that. But now we're talking about a lot of stuff that feels like I don't know how to do that. But you get to crowdsource it with wise and godly people, some of whom have already been down that road, some of whom know more than you, have experienced more than you, or might be more mature. And you get to live in the light in that community. The principle is date in community. The couples I get concerned about are the couples who are always off together, just the two of them, and nobody knows what's going on in the relationship. And the couples that are most encouraging are the ones where there's a dozen people on either side who know real time what's going on. Where are the speed bumps? Where are the questions? Where are the celebrations? There was 100 people at me and Anna's rehearsal dinner downtown at the bar we did it at, and the reason why is... 50 of them were about were extended family, and the other 50 was the village that it took for us to date, get engaged, and get married. And I told them that night, there's no way on earth we would be here if Jesus hadn't used all of you to carry us here. We date in community if we date safely at all. We guard our hearts. I'll say more about that next week as we talk about more intimate relationships that are headed towards engagement or marriage. We're mindful that romance is powerful and like a V8 car or like a gun, we respect the power that it has. It is more powerful than you. It is more powerful than you. It is more powerful than you. Wise people respect that. Um, People who lack wisdom play with it. And this is what he says in Song of Songs 8. For daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, listen to me. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires or until it's time because it has a life of its own. And if you're off to the races week one, month one, six months in, um, you've awakened love, aroused love. And you're like, man, I'm a sophomore We can't get married this year. We can't get married next year. How are we going to pull this off? It puts you in an impossible situation. 
All right, y'all, we've been through a lot. Um, it's been a long talk. Uh, I just want to end with this, and we'll pick up the conversation next week and continue it. First, does God have any interest in your romantic life, whether it exists or not, whether it's in shambles, whether you feel it's silly, or whether it's at a serious place right now? Read the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself and know that every man and woman in that genealogy had a romance, and it was a broken, challenging romance, and it was a redeemed romance. Every man and woman in those genealogies prayed their hearts out to a God who listens and a God who cares and a God who takes your dating life seriously because he takes you seriously, who cares about that because he cares about you. So don't apologize for your prayers or pouring out your heart to him. He's the father you go to with those questions, not the father you button up around because he's not interested. Lastly, what does Jesus have to do with this in your heart, in your dating relationships? First uh, John 4, 9 through 11. You already know what true love is. That is not something that you're waiting to experience or waiting to find out on the other side the greener grass on the other side of the hill of where you find yourself now. You know now, this is love, not that we have loved God, not that we have provided him with something that we conjured up, but that he loved us and that his love to you wasn't just a warm sentiment that was never proven in real life. But he put his money and he put his life and he put his son where his mouth was. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved you and sent his son as a sacrifice for your sins to marry you, to pursue you, to be reconciled to you, permanently made one in one flesh with you, to be in a permanent state of love with you. So friends, God takes this seriously. If you lack wisdom, God is willing to help you. And the context that all of this happens inside of is a redemptive romance that he has set on you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a lot to talk about. It's a lot in terms of it being weighty, in terms of it being challenging, in terms of just how much we've said. We're all at different places. We all need little different pieces of what's happened tonight. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would steward one or two tiny little pieces and let it remain in our minds and go down to our hearts and come out of our lives. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.